Good morning, everyone. We're going to jump back into Proverbs chapter 20, where we are dealing with fools and their foolishness. And so we have a not really a tight section thematically, but some overlap with the rest of the text, both what we've been through already and what we'll come upon once more. We'll pick up without much of a running start at chapter 11 of Proverbs, or excuse me, verse 11, Proverbs chapter 20, verse 11, right after our invocation and prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. All right. Of course, last week at verse 10, unequal weights, unequal measures. We're going to hit that again in verse 23. So on to the new one. At verse 11, even a child makes himself known by his acts, by whether his conduct is pure and upright. There is enough uh, grammatical ambiguity here to read this a couple of different ways, but the way that the ESV takes it, fairly straightforward and in this sense, that um, the nature of a person is in their acts, not their words. So actions speak louder than words is the proverb we have. And that there is a self-revelation in actions. It is maybe very generally true that you will know the tree by its fruits. If you take that in the specific case in which Jesus mentions it in Matthew 7, though, that isn't about good works. It's about false prophets, and the false prophets are bad trees, and the bad fruit by which you'll know them is what comes out of their mouth. In fact, their works look just fine. They're wet wolves dressed in the clothing of sheep. And so they look like sheep. They look like they have good Christian works. But then as a false prophet, as a bad tree, they bear bad fruit. They bear false teaching. So that would be a specific usage of that. But again, more generally, by your fruits you will know them, is the sentiment here that even children reveal their nature by their acts, whether their conduct is pure and upright. Okay, 12, the hearing ear and the seeing eye. The Lord has made them both. There are going to be a few Proverbs in this section that reflect on our complete dependence upon God. Now, by way thematically, the fool or the foolish person is not going to recognize this. That the hearing ear and the seeing eye only hear and only see because the Lord grants it and grants it present tense. So the kind of spiritual blindness that corrupts the world is, well, of course I hear. Of course I see. Of course I think. 
and I am in control of all of these things and I simply take them for granted. And you see this in the extreme in the basement dwelling Reddit atheist who thinks that he's going to use his witty atheistic argument uh, when he sees God face to face and God's going to be stumped. (laughs) So... God not only gives the ear that hears, the eye that sees, but the mind that thinks. And the catechism is so beautiful on this point, as are the scriptures, of course. The summary is that you are not your own, not even your soul. Not even your body. And then, of course, your reason and all your senses. And there the five senses certainly apply, but it's probably more broad than that. Even your your capacity for... uh, emotional intelligence or compassion, uh, empathy, that, those kinds of things. So all of these things come from the Lord. We're completely and utterly dependent upon Him. There's no part of me, properly speaking, I mean, we speak this way all the time, and it's fine to do so, but there's no part of me that's outside of that. God, uh, I'm, I'm entirely His creature. You're entirely His creature. Everything you have is a present tense gift that He gives. Okay, so... Fools don't recognize that. That's the blindness of the world. Then 13, love not sleep, lest you come to poverty. Open your eyes and you will have plenty of bread. So another proverb, one of many, many proverbs against sloth, that deadly sin, one of the seven deadly sins, sloth. And that idea of uh, loving sleep. Of course, sleep can be a kind of, I mean, if you think, it depends on your, your, uh, <laughs> your place in life, your relationship to sleep, doesn't it? When you're, when you're maybe a, a young person, sleep is just kind of this, uh, it, fe- it really feels good to sleep. And then as you get older in life, maybe sleep becomes a kind of escape. Like there's no better feeling than crawling into bed because at least you don't have to deal with anything for the next four, five, six hours, whatever it is, right? So, yeah, be, care- be careful of sleep because it's a, it's a blessing, obviously, and God gives rest, and we'll see Proverbs to that effect, and gives sleep, uh, gives that stillness of heart that allows for good sleep and that right conscience that allows us to sleep without anxiety. But too much sleep, of course, uh, leads to Sloth, that deadly sin. And, of course, that ultimately comes about that uh, one doesn't have anything to eat. So, love not sleep, lest you come to poverty. Open your eyes and you will have plenty of bread. Be self-evident, poverty. All right, 14's great. Bad, bad, says the buyer. But when he goes away, then he boasts. So, what's going on here? If you're wheeling and dealing... You look at the product and you say, ah, uh, I don't know. Did you notice this dent or that smudge? Or uh, the competitor up the street has it for cheaper, but I'm here, so what can, you know, and you, you downplay, you downplay. As soon as you get it, then you boast. Look what I got. Look how great it is. So a kind of deceitfulness, dishonesty there. I, an opportunity to mourn that we just can't have straight-up transactions with each other at fair price. I mean, that's the vision of the large catechism. It's the vision of the scriptures, of course, the the way in which God puts down his laws for 
the nation state of Israel of the Old Testament. That's um, it's all based on it's just justice and doing what's right and a fair price. And there's nothing wrong with taking a little profit as long as it's fair. And as long as you're, you're getting fair value and giving fair value, then all of society works harmoniously. Not so where everybody's looking out for his own best interest. kind of wild. Every once in a while on social media, you'll, you've probably ran across these things where someone will order one hard drive or order one, uh, I don't know what else, and uh, maybe, you know, people don't order movies anymore that way. Maybe they order people order. Anyway, maybe one book. And instead of, instead of just one coming, they get like a whole case shipped to them. There's obviously some kind of like big error made by the Amazon worker or whoever it may be and ship the whole case. But the post and all the comments are, oh, lucky you. Oh, bank error in your favor. Oh, look what you get. What are you going to do with them? It's like the thought doesn't even approach, it doesn't even cross people's mind that they might return them. That someone might be losing their job <laughs> over the top. No, just, hey, these are mine. Uh, it's just indicative of the decay of our culture and um, and can be indicative of systemic financial injustice and unrightness in our culture too, to where people feel as though the companies are rip- the big companies are ripping off everybody so bad that hey, who cares if you get your pound of flesh good on you um, that's just indicative of systemic injustice, systemic financial unrighteousness but so whether viewed in the in the micro or in the macro, these reflections are simply that of the proverb that we won't conduct, fallen man won't just conduct straight up business. And as Christians, we want to buck that. We want to have the equal weights and equal measures uh, from verse 10 and later on in verse 23. Um, We want to have a fair deal. We don't want to cheat people. Okay, maybe one more, and then I'll see what reflections you have. Okay, 15, straightforward, and a theme we've seen before. There is gold, an abundance of costly stones, but the lips of knowledge are a precious jewel. So the sense of which is that the lips of knowledge are better than all of these things. Better than gold, better than abundance of costly stones. To have knowledge upon one's lips is greater still. Obviously then that's to know God's word, to have that word given to us, to have that word written into us so that we can speak it. It's upon our lips. That's all what's in view here. All right, let me pause there and see what reflections you have, what questions. Maybe none yet. It's fine. Opportunity to drink a little coffee. The, uh, the ear, the hearing, mm-hmm. and the eye. Uh, is that in a physical or is that in a spiritual sense? Uh, the thought came into my mind about Revelation. He who has ears, let him hear. Um, and I'm not sure there whether that's physical or spiritual. Mm-hmm. Sounds like you were cutting uh, in and out there, so I'll do my best to repeat the question. So back at 13, or excuse me, 12, the hearing, ear, and the seeing eye, is this physical or spiritual? And I think, I think it reflects or, or invites reflection on both. Yeah, why not? 
Everything we have physically is from the Lord and is sustained by him. And that's the first article of the creed, that he, it's not that we don't have a God who creates things and then just walks away into some distant part of the galaxy and lets it all run. Every, and I know this gets like a little woo-woo and a little maybe smelling of hemp or something, but it shouldn't. The, the idea is that, every, I mean, every moment is held together by God. All the atoms and physics and internal workings of you in the world are they're constantly and continually in present tense actively upheld by God and his word I mean I think where it gets a little woo woo is where I mean you just when you meditate on it it's like kind of this incredible surreal uh, you know reality that you, that you're, you become aware of uh, God's ongoing creation if God truly like fell asleep or something uh, everything would just become nothing so it's an ongoing active creation, including then our physical hearing, our physical sight. And then spiritual hearing, like Jesus said, you mentioned, um, but he who has ears hear. That's a spiritual hearing. And it's, of course, the word of God is the one that gives us ears to hear. And then will you continue to hear? Will you reject that? And then eyes to see is the same way, revelatory. And we don't spend enough time. As Lutherans, we're so wound up about the word and hearing, which is fine, but there are other spiritual senses as well that are of... uh, So spiritual sight is especially important. Remember Jesus talking about the lamp of the eye? And if, if what they think is light is darkness, then how great is the actual darkness? So to see things, behold things, um, I think conceptually that often comes across to us as imagination first. But I don't think it's necessarily identical to imagination. It's the ability to see what God's word says. And you have to believe it before you see it. But as you believe it, you begin to see it. And it's a kind of, it can have a physical dimension to it, but it can also have a super physical dimension to it, or it's hard to categorize. But you see, like, um, what would be in the realm of this would be where uh, prophets and Christians have uh, visions, let's say, or dream dreams, or that kind of thing. That would, those would be phenomena within the sphere of spiritual seeing. Spiritual seeing, might, you could think on it like this. Like when you see the bread of the, of the Holy Eucharist, what do you see? I mean, on one hand, physically, you just see bread. It's like literally the light from whatever source bouncing off the bread and coming into your eye and you recognize it as bread. But what do you actually see when you look at it? I don't just see, I don't think I see bread when I look at it. I see that's Christ. It's, and it's really hard for me if someone's like, you don't see Christ there. It's like I kind of have to wait. I, I, mean, I kind of have to do this mental thing of like, oh yeah, okay, well, yeah, purely physically, fine. I don't, but I, I hear what that is. I know what that is. I see Christ. So many such examples. I think um, even the... Yeah, that line, the glory of the Lord fills the heavens and the earth. And we always think of like, well, in the heavens, it's self-evident that the glory of the Lord fills the heavens. But 
Is it evident to us that the glory of the Lord fills the earth? So the psalmist looks at the trees and doesn't just see trees blowing. He sees them clapping their hands. He looks at the hills and doesn't see them stationary. He sees them like dancing and and bucking. And he sees all of creation in a kind of cosmic divine liturgy, continually praising the Lord. He sees a cosmic divine service. And he's seeing these things. They're visual descriptors. And if you said, oh, are you literally seeing them? Well, what do you mean by literally? (laughs) Gets really hard to describe. But he sees the glory of the Lord filling not only the heavens, but also the earth. So maybe just some food for thought there. Of course, there's spiritual um, scent that Paul talks about. The aroma of death leading to death. The aroma of life leading to life. Um, the idea of Christ as the sweet-smelling sacrifice, the stench of our sins rising up to the nostrils of God being a contrast. Um, there's, so there's all kinds. Of, and it's more than just mere metaphor. If you read it like just mere metaphor, you're letting the quote-unquote Western Academy strip you of your heritage. Um, it's not mere metaphor. It's much deeper reality and truth. So, yeah. Yeah. There's all the all the senses have their spiritual counterparts, and the, by the way, I mean the Lutherans talked about this all the time. We've just lost it ever since science, and then it became embarrassing to talk about these things because science. And then you just kind of pull the veil back on science and realize it's an embarrassing sham, and then you're back to what did the, what did the church say again? What did the scriptures say again? <laughs> Yes, please. Uh, we all the way in the front. We're going to exercise you here. Years ago, I, our family was listening to a minister over the radio, and he was saying, "People who are their assignment is to detect counterfeit money." Yeah. And the way they practice doing that is that they look intimately at real money. Mm -hmm. So they recognize the false money the minute they see it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's great. There's a spiritual intuition we can have. We've got to be careful because there's a spiritual intuition we can have that's like that, where if you're really well acquainted with the scriptures, you're really well acquainted with the tradition and history of the church, even if you can't quite quote a chapter and verse as to why that's wrong, you go, something's off there. Something's funny there. And that's a good impulse to cultivate. So you know the, the true stuff so much so that the, uh, the fake stuff is, is evident. You just have to be careful there because sometimes the Bible does a rug pull on you and what seems to be counterintuitive, what seems to not make sense or be right, is in fact right and you're in error. So... Yeah, spiritually you got to be you got to be careful of both those sides of the coin. I think. Thank you. Any other thoughts? All right, we're rambling on. Gosh, sixteen is so hard. I I kind of have no idea what it means, but not conceptually. That's not really the problem. Just the grammar. So take a look at it. Take a man's in the con- yeah I don't know. Take a man's garment when he has put up security for a stranger and hold it in pledge when he puts up security for foreigners. 
All right, so obviously these are parallel statements. They're not saying anything new. And you've got someone, you've got this man who puts up security for a stranger or puts up security for foreigners. So it seems like you have these two parties, and that seems grammatically like you have this third party, namely you, the reader, who is to take this man's garment when he puts up a security for a stranger. So what is going on here? I don't know. It doesn't seem like the commentary or the study note really knows either. If you look down at the study note, um, again, chapter 2016, Okay, fine. Garment clothing had much greater value in ancient times because everything had to be made by hand. The outer garment was deposited by the borrower as security for a loan. This proverb seems to say, with subtle irony, that once you have made a speculative investment with unknown foreigners, all you can do is vainly hold them to their contract, which will likely prove worthless. We should be wary of lending to those who are likely to default. What better security than to take a person's clothing? <laughs> All right, well, whatever. I, I mean, I think that that's the sense of this is the same as we, we saw a very similar thought back in chapter 6. We'll see it again in chapter 27. And that's, that's really just, I think this is the point being communicated, is don't put yourself on the hook for other people. That's, it's foolish to do. We all know the proverbial, I signed on the car loan for my uh, son or daughter, and it went upside down and it went bad, and now I'm on the hook. Yeah, well, you shouldn't have done that. It's kind of this biblical wisdom of, um, yeah. So I don't know. When you look at what's, so what's confusing is if you've got these third parties that you, you, the reader, and the man have to, you have to somehow have your monies entwined, and if he goes and does this foolish thing, you've got to hold him accountable for it by grabbing his garment. This foolish thing somehow affects you and your finances, so whether he's some sort of employee or steward of yours, or um, whether he's borrowing from you in order to give to the stranger or foreigner, and I don't, I don't think this is like doing a racism here. I think this is the, the idea is just that a stranger or a foreigner, like, they can just fly by night. There's no family. There's no house or domicile. There's no, uh, those normal guarantees that you can go knocking on somebody's door. Um, they're just, uh, they could just be gone. So I think the sense is pretty clear and pretty straightforward, even though the language of it is anything but. Anyone want to discuss anything there? I was afraid of that, Dale. <laughs> this interesting. Is, is this working? Okay. One of the things I think is interesting uh, in the uh, New American Standard, which I, I think is what you're using right now. ESV. Oh, here. ESV. Mm-hmm. It's similar. It says uh, that take his garment... Uh, take the garment of the one who's a, a surety for a stranger and for foreigners hold him in pledge in the King James Version uh, it says and hold his garment as a pledge if it's for a seductress hmm. 
right? So there's there's some sort of a distinction, I think, being made if you're just helping out a stranger versus helping out a seductress. I don't know what to make of that. Maybe that makes it... I don't think it makes it easier to talk about. I don't think so. So either. you're welcome. <laughs> yeah, complication here is not the problem. That's, uh, it's, it's difficult to understand exactly what's going on, even though, this, like I said, it's a strange thing because the sense is clear enough. The sense is um, don't, don't support somebody else's bad business deal or don't support somebody else's uh, pledge if it's going to come back on your head, especially when that pledge is risky and, and or unwise. Is there a distinction between taking a garment and holding it as a pledge? I don't think so. I mean, there's nothing, there's nothing in Steinman's commentary about it, even though he writes like two paragraphs. Um, and you can see the, I mean, the kind of, sorry, I think I learned this in my, undergrad philosophy class, the weasel language of the study Bible, this proverb seems to say <laughs> with subtle irony which is already difficult to grasp etc, etc. So there's uncertainty I mean there's uncertainty and ambiguity expressed in, in both my primary references here and where that's the case it's pretty much usually a waste of time to go digging anymore. Alright, moving on. 17. Bread gained by deceit is sweet to a man, but afterward his mouth will be full of gravel. Just great, isn't it? Just really visceral. Ill-gotten gains. They, they taste sweet at first. That was easy. Duped that guy. But then uh, it, it either turns to gravel in your mouth or God fills it with gravel later on. However you want to look at it. Pretty visceral language there. Ill-gotten gains are only temporarily sweet, and they come with curse. Okay, 18, plans are established by counsel, by wise guidance, wage war. So, um, to, again here, it's the humility in, in making plans that are very serious, like waging war. These aren't to be undertaken alone. So you want to uh, receive counsel, the wisdom of others. That's what plans are established by counsel means. And then the specific instance to receive wise guidance in order to wage war. That's true, because in conflict, in the heat of battle, um, you're not as clear thinking as you uh, might otherwise be. What's that saying about a man... uh, who has himself as a lawyer. So that's the same idea of like you can't, when you're looking at things where, you're, where you've got emotion or pride or serious things on the line, you need the counsel of others, you need the balance of others because you're going to miss stuff and you're going to make mistakes. So you can also file this under kind of one of those slow down Um, Proverbs: Don't go rushing into things foolishly, but slow down, receive the counsel of others, receive the ongoing counsel, especially in something as significant as waging war. All right. So as we wage our spiritual war, putting on the full armor of God and taking up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, then we want to do so by counsel and by wise guidance. 
And that's not only the full sum of the scriptures, but um, those Orthodox Church fathers and Christians who can counsel and steer us right and grant, grant wisdom and understanding as we wage our spiritual war. So I think that would be a, a nice theological application of this proverb. 19. Whoever goes about slandering reveals secrets. Therefore, do not associate with a simple babbler. So if you've got somebody with loose lips, if you hang out with them long enough, you're going to slip and say something, and everybody else is going to say something that you don't want to be public, and everybody else is going to know about it. So again, this section dealing with fools and foolishness, you will find a kind of fool that just babbles all the time and has no uh, internal monologue per se. So, warning and admonition there. Whoever goes about slandering reveals secrets. It's like, so this is a thing, I think we've talked about this before, that gossip is a currency. I think this is especially true amongst women, but men can obviously fall prey to it too, that gossip is a currency. Let me, in on, let, let me let you in on so-and-so or such-and-such, and then rapport is gained between the women. of like, oh, okay. But that's foolish because if they're gossiping to you about someone else, what are they going to do? Gossip to someone else about you. You're just their new currency. So that's the idea of, of recognizing slanderers those who slander and reveal secrets and recognizing that it's no currency at all. You're just dealing with somebody who's untrustworthy. And people just get, they seem to be bored. They get up all in, uh, they're busybodies. That's the, the translation uh, commonly found in the New Testament. They're busybodies. They're constant, they constantly have their nose in other people's business just for the sake of the drama. So you want to not be that way as a Christian. You want to avoid people are that, who are that way as a Christian. All right, shall we pause there? Any thoughts drummed up? Any questions drummed up? Okay, on to one that's going to strike us as very harsh, but remind us of the importance with which God holds the office of father and mother. So, if one curses his father or his mother, his lamp will be put out in utter darkness. It has a kind of, I suppose, like very, <laughs> very simple meaning. If, your mom, if, you, if you're cursing your mom and dad and they hear it, they're probably going to take you and your lamp and put you outside. <laughs> Ah, shoot. Yeah. But obviously there's more to it than that, that God loves father and mother and loves that office. And that's why the fourth commandment's higher than any other commandments, even you shall not murder when it comes to relationships with our neighbors, because we are dependent upon our earthly parents. Now, this can be a, uh, an eternal consequence. It can be a temporal consequence. And of course, because God is who he is, it can be a consequence that is not uh, fully laid upon us. So if you've committed this kind of sin, repent, be absolved, and entrust yourself to your Father's hand. Try to set right what you can. Bear fruit worthy of repentance. All right, 21, 
an inheritance gained hastily in the beginning will not be blessed in the end. Wealthy people know this because they set up trusts for their children. And the trusts often have rules of various distributions or distribution or access given at a certain age. So um, a father who just says, hey, here's your whole, uh, here's your whole inheritance up front, 16-year-old. That's not particularly wise. Yeah. So an inheritance gained haste, hastily in the beginning will not be blessed in the end. I don't know what else we want to say. More could certainly be said there, but let's not. 22, do not say, I will repay evil. Wait for the Lord and he will deliver you. So this is, again, vengeance is mine, thus saith the Lord. So entrust yourself to the Lord. Don't look for getting justice yourself. Don't, I mean, no matter how good you think it's going to feel, it's going to be even better when God delivers it. And it's going to be better, I mean, in the sense of, like, God knows how to perfectly deal an insult and recompense, but also because God knows how to weigh things justly. And he, he may know and see things that you don't know and see. And it may be lighter than you would like, but you don't have privy, you don't have inf- the full information. You're not privy to the full information. So do not say, I will repay evil. Wait for the Lord and he will deliver you. You Also, if you repay evil, guess what's going to happen? Somebody in their family is going to repay evil. Somebody in your family is going to repay evil. And you end up with a disaster. Maybe even entire nations built over this sort of one does an act of vengeance and another. It's like, you know, it's like children. Who started it? No, no parent really cares. Just stop it. <laughs> so you can also then keep yourself from being entangled in all this if you refuse to take steps of vengeance and you just allow the Lord to sort it out. Then actually what you're doing is the Lord sorts it out. When you see it, you'll probably know it, but you don't participate in the feud. There's no opportunity for a feud to be, you know, if you go out and take vengeance, somebody's going to come take vengeance on you or your... So really wise, really wise spiritual counsel here. Twenty-three is the same as ten. Unequal weights are an abomination to the Lord, and false scales are not good. So again, it's only those who think themselves wise and crafty, but they're truly foolish because God sees it all. That's why we shouldn't seek vengeance or cheating others, because God sees it all. Twenty-four is great. A man's steps are from the Lord. How then can man understand his way? So I think it's fun to read this just as a straightforward riddle. What do you think? How would you answer? A man's steps are from the Lord. The sentiment would be, um, it would almost be like uncomfortably deterministic. From our perspective, probably, it would be uh, wherever a man goes, those steps are already ahead of him, planted there by the Lord.
A man's steps are from the Lord. Does that mean that the Lord's the author of evil? No. We know that from other clearer texts of Scripture, so that's not what's in view here. So what is in view? If the Lord gives the very steps themselves, how can a man understand his way? Otherwise, he has no idea how he's walking through life, why he does what he does, why he doesn't do what he doesn't do. Man's effectively clueless because the Lord puts it all in place. It's true for, it's really true for every human being. People don't know where they came from or where they're going because it's the Lord who puts their steps down. So how would you know where you came from, where you are, where you're going? Sir. Well, one thing that occurs to me uh, in that is that if everything I do is plotted out by God, then understanding myself involves understanding the will of God. Bingo. Right, so I have to understand, the, and people that don't understand the will of God will never understand themselves. Exactly right. Yeah, I think that's it. I think the, the really simple answer to this riddle, and I do think it is this, a man's steps are from the Lord. How then can man understand his way? You have to turn to the Lord. If the Lord's the one who sets your steps, you're not going to have any understanding unless you turn to him and, as you said, know his will. That's the only way. And it's the only way you're going to understand your life. It's the only way you're going to look at the steps, the footprints that lie behind you and where you're at now and where you're going. And wait a minute, why is it going here? Did I make a wrong decision? Did I make a wrong turn? I mean, you know, maybe you did. But then what would the Lord have you do? Where do your, where do your footsteps now lead? So, yeah, I think that's exactly right. It's an acknowledgement that the Lord is in charge. I don't know. I get, I get kind of like uncomfortably Lutheran myself on this point. Like if you read Bondage of the Will, it's super uncomfortably deterministic, even sometimes philosophically. It's kind of great. It's like, you know, row, row, row your boat gently down the stream. You don't have a choice to be on the stream or not. You're not going to be able to take your boat beyond the bounds of the stream. Certain currents and eddies push you this way or that way. You may not have the strength to do what you think you want to do. You can row, but you're, you know, we get this stupid idea in our minds. It's like Western Americans are like, I'm entirely free. I can do whatever I want. Well, first of all, you're confined to the very thoughts that are given you. <laughs> and you're only aware of what you're aware of. So the banks, the boundary of the banks are pretty firm. You're, what man knows the emotions of his heart, why he feels this way or feels that way, or why he does this or does that, the impulsivity of the human heart, like those currents. I chose who I, where I was going to go to school. Really, what was your data set? Where did that come from? I chose who I was going to marry. Oh, okay, out of, out of what? The billions of people, uh, women, they all lined up for you so you could just go by each one and choose because they all want you too, right guys? Yeah. So <laughs> we ch- we chose a pastor in the, you know. Oh, did you? Did you? Cuz that's a fascinating thing when congregations call a pastor. It's like a true miracle of God that any one man lands in one place. 
everybody thinks, oh yeah, we've all got free will and we're all going to vote and it's all going to come. If you've ever, yeah, if you've ever paid attention to these things, it never happens that way. So, yeah, I, I like I like Luther. I like bondage of the will. I like pushing the envelope because I think the scriptures do, and and it's not it doesn't remove culpability. It doesn't remove human agency and fault for sins. It doesn't remove any of that. Uh, but it is um, from our Western modern Western perspective uncomfortably deterministic. Even just to read the line, a man's steps are from the Lord. Okay, please. I'm sorry, I cut oh, you off. I was just thinking, in association with this, with the passage, he leadeth me in the path of righteousness. Yeah, exactly. Right? Right? A sheep, a sheep thinks it has free will. Where will I walk today? Wherever I want. What's that tapping on my rear? <laughs> guess, guess I choose with my free will to go the other way. <laughs> Ridiculous. Yeah. Um, I have a question going back to uh, verse 20. Uh, who, whoso curseth his father or his mother. Mm, yeah. um, about a good prayer to say for father and mother. Um, if God was pleased to place parents that you love, uh, you know, place you under the care of parents who mock Christianity, let's say, mm, yeah. would a good prayer uh, please turn them to you, but not my will, but your will be done? I mean, just thinking of yeah through prayer but yeah all our all our prayers are that God will convert the hearts and minds of people and there's a mystery there and where people reject God I mean it's a sad thing but that sadness needs to have a boundary or a limitation to it as well lest lest we fall into a kind of idolatry lest I love my family member or friend or parents whatever the case may be more than God um, there, there's a certain so you remember the argument in Romans um, basically the Jew and Gentile without, without excuse God has revealed himself as creator to, the, to all people everywhere it's just flat out New Testament theology and that God has given a conscience that accuses and excuses and many cases he's given the divine law itself where you don't have the law where you don't have the bible you have the conscience you have these things written into nature themselves there's not a single human being that's without excuse so we i think we need to meditate on that too otherwise we get this idea of like like maybe anger angry or like bitter or sad toward god like god why won't you do this thing instead of frustrated and angry with the one who continues to reject God. And at a certain point, you know, it's not like your love diminishes, but it just changes. Like, you hate the thing I love the most. You hate the thing that loves you. You hate the thing that... You know, at a certain point, you kind of... This is what Jesus, Jesus always says it better. Whoever doesn't hate husband or wife or children or family members is not worthy of me. He just cuts right to the chase, doesn't he? Just obliterates all the idols immediately with one line. So, yeah, I, I think, anyway, to circle all the way back, I think that's a great prayer. And, yeah, it's a great thing to pray that God would convert. I think we need to hold our frustration in, in the right place, that our frustration is with the hardness of the hearts of those who will not believe, not with God who, for whatever reason, will not convert. Okay, yes, sir. Of course, you're talking about freedom of the will and determinism here, and I can't help but bring up some of my thoughts on this. Oh, okay. I don't think 
that God, well, you said it earlier, he created everything. He, he maintains everything. Everything, right? The universe doesn't have enough oomph to get from one moment to the next, right, without God. So it's all God's ordaining, mm-hmm. right? But now, one of the things you see, like, uh, Calvinists will say, are you a Calvinist or an Arminian? As if, well, yeah, you either have to reject freedom of the will or you have to accept that God ordained, you know, reject that God ordained everything, right? These are the only choices possible. Mm-hmm. Uh, they forget the fact that they think Adam himself had free will, but let's, let's leave that aside. But the point is that, that we can have all the freedom in the, in, the wor- in the world if we are acting in concurrence with God. Yeah. If we're acting not in concurrence with God, God wins, right? Yeah, right? exactly. If, 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 right? But if, if we act in concurrence with him, we, we want to do the same thing as him, or we do what he, you know, the sheep thinks he has free will, he gives it because, but it's only because the shepherd gave him a whack on the rump. But right. still, he's acting in concurrence with the shepherd. Right. That's a, that's a, it's not freedom of the will like God enjoys, but it is some measure mm-hmm. of freedom, and it's all we could ever expect. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well said. Well said. And to kind of further that point, even if you did have absolute human freedom, you're limited by your very self and by your very nature. When you break outside of that into the freedom that God has for you, now your freedom's God-sized, right? Because you don't have to act in self-interest. You act in God-interest, which is wild and wonderful and infinite and dynamic. That's, and that's part of the, the freedom with which he has already set us free. If you, that's, that's where Jesus, you know, if you keep my... If you obey my words, if you keep my commandments, you are free, that kind of thing. It just doesn't make sense to modern Muslims or modern Christians, but it makes perfect sense when you think about it in the terms you brought up, Dale. Yeah, the row, row, row your boat is the stuff that's underneath you. That's the way the Lutheran confessions and dogmaticians define it. You have certain free choice, like you can choose what shirt to wear today or not, and um, you know what, what to have for breakfast or what to read after lunch. All these things that are below you, you've got choice. It's not illusory. But even that choice isn't as free as you think it is. And isn't free in in the way that the world thinks it's free. Okay, good. Any other reflections? Yes, sir. I'm sorry, I can't understand your question. Would it be would it be all right if we chatted after the class? Would you would you want to ask that? That'd be awesome. Thanks. Okay, so let's jump into twenty-five. Ooh, we don't have much time. Okay, it'll be a fast one. It is a snare to say rashly it is holy and to reflect only after making vows. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, all right. The picture here. Um, the study notes really helpful on the uh, on the holy bit. I think to consecrate or devote something to the Lord is what's in view here. You remember the story of that man who said the next thing that comes out of the tent will be sacrificed and devoted unto the Lord, and it was his daughter. Remember that tragic story. So that's a nice illustration. Well, nothing nice about it, but. An illustration of exactly what this is. Um, don't be uh, too quick. Don't say rashly, it is holy, it is given unto the Lord. 
Don't make vows you can't keep. That's the second part. Um, to reflect only after making vows. So you make your vow first, and then afterwards you're like, oh no. <laughs> ah. So what would we file this under? Again, it's another slow down and think proverb. It's a slow down and consider the cost. You remember this, even the New Testament, Jesus talks about this, that um, the man, before he builds a skyscraper, better sit down and contemplate whether he can finish it before he starts. Otherwise, he's going to lay down the foundation and stop, and everybody's going to laugh at him. Same with a guy who goes out to war, having less troops than more. If he goes rashly into that, he's just going to get wiped out, and everybody's going to laugh at him. So there's our Lord's teaching on... um, slowing down and considering things. And our Lord's not even afraid to say, you better slow down and consider what it means to be my disciple. Because what I promise you isn't a rose garden, but a garden of Gethsemane and a cross. So it's a, so, I mean, Jesus is anything but like the used car salesman. Come, come follow me. Have your best life now. I promise. That's really going to, I'll make you happy. No, Jesus is like, uh, if you'd like to follow me, it's going to be a, uh, a cross. It's going to be a passion. It's going to be a death. It's going to be a resurrection. It's going to be a glorification. It's not going to be on your terms or according to your sinful impulses. So you have to weigh that cost. You have to slow down. Consider if that's worth it. Of course it is. The alternative's horrible. Whatever pleasure now for eternity of pain and horror, or some pain and horror now, in exchange for an eternity of blessing with the Lord. All right, the Lord be with you.